ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Here's a question. Does your mind ever play tricks on you? So you see a shadow outside your window and you mistake it for a person lurking on the street. Or you convince yourself your friend is mad at you when they really aren't. These are fairly common delusions that are easy enough to talk yourself out of, but for some people, like the artist Matt Otley, delusions aren't so harmless. During a particularly bad episode I had, I thought I had something growing inside of me. The sense I had of it, it was like mycelium, you know, it was like the, the root system of a mushroom that was growing through my body. This is one of many psychotic episodes Matt has gone through. He not only experiences delusions, but powerful hallucinations and disordered thinking that can be impossible to remedy with logic. Everything makes sense within context, but nothing makes sense. For those of us who've never gone through an episode of psychosis, it can be difficult to imagine what it's like to lose control of your senses and your sense of reality. So today, we're going to get an insight into what psychosis is like from an artist's perspective and get some sense of what might be going on in the brain during a psychotic episode. What they seem to have is a failure to connect messages that get sent from one part of the brain to another part of the brain. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Producer Shelby Trainer has today's episode. My mind is racing. My thoughts are looping at a thousand miles an hour and I'm also really depressed. When Matt Otley is in this mixed state of mental illness, meaning he's both manic and incredibly low, he can lose the ability to understand language. So I can hear the internal monologue in my own head, but when people speak to me, it just comes out of gobbledygook. It was during this psychotic episode, when Matt couldn't understand what anybody around him was saying, that he started writing the music for his latest project. I closeted myself into my room, basically, and wrote the music, because what happens in that state is music becomes crystal clear. The project is called The Tree of Ecstasy and Unbearable Sadness. It's both an orchestral composition and an illustrated storybook. All aspects aim to give the reader, or the listener, some idea of what a psychotic episode is like. The different artistic forms are intricately linked and they each tell a different part of the story. Matt has type 1 bipolar disorder, meaning he experiences both major depressive episodes and manic episodes. Both in states of mania and in depression, I can become delusional and can hear and see things that don't exist. I think the sort of psychotic aspect of it started very young. I would have been about nine and I experienced uh, hallucinations. My brother used to keep spiders in a, in a jar. They would speak to me. Uh, they had these low, guttural voices. I could kind of get the words, but not really clearly. I just knew they were talking to me. Another time I saw a winged person, like a, an angel, that flew into the window and was sort of hanging on the windowsill and just looking in at me. 
before flying away. Matt says these hallucinations started when he was about nine years old. His father was absent and his mother was reluctant to talk about what was going on. I learned how to live with the manic episodes and as a teenager I would basically lock myself in my room and just write it out. For Matt, this cycle of relapse and remission has been lifelong. But it's only recently he's consciously turned his art towards the topic. The purpose is to give people who've never experienced psychosis some idea of what it can be like. The Tree of Ecstasy and Unbearable Sadness is the story of an unnamed boy going through a psychotic illness. It's told in the composition you're hearing now and in a story with vivid illustrations. Even before he was born, he was cherished. But there was, even then, deep within him, a seed. When his sadness became unbearable, his parents sought the help of doctors. They proclaimed there was a tree whose flower was ecstasy and whose fruit was sadness growing within him. It would always be there. The boy has this tree growing inside of him. I wanted something to represent the bipolar mind. So it has flowers, which are things of beauty and exquisite. The fruit can be as well, but the fruit can also be poisonous, can be toxic. It can represent so many different states of mind. One day, the effort of containing the tree became too difficult. The medicine he's taking is just not strong enough anymore. The tree grows and, and he surrenders to it. Please, implored his friends. You must fight. You mustn't allow yourself to be lost, cried his parents. The tree is too strong for me, said the boy. At this particular part of the story, you see the branches of the tree actually growing out through his eyes and his mouth and his ears, and that's meant to be quite confronting. You're hearing the fugue in the music, which is representative of the multiple voices in his head. And the general cacophony in his head, which is just becoming unbearable. So it just becomes this cacophonous noise. There's a moment of silence right in the middle of that section. And then the noise starts again. So you're getting an insight into the maelstrom that is going on inside the boy's head. Soon, he could not even speak. And not long after that, there was nothing of him but the tree. This is the beginning of psychosis. You know, the, his, his mind is detaching from reality, from his body. This is the acute phase of psychosis. At this point, the boy and Matt 
enter a place the majority of us have never been. In this place, people experiencing psychosis do really hear, see, smell, even sometimes taste things that aren't really there. They can hold strong beliefs and false ideas. It's all in their head, but so is everyone's perception of the world. What's a good example? Okay, so one good example that we seem to have some level of idea about is a delusion where you believe your movements are being controlled by an external force, whether it's aliens or whatever. This is Professor Stephen Wood, who leads the Clinical Neuroscience Research Area at Origin. When we look at the way in which people's brains are functioning who have that symptomatic experience, what they seem to have is a failure to connect messages that get sent from one part of the brain to another part of the brain. So when we move normally, we, we send an instruction from our brain to the muscles that control our hand saying, make this movement. And at the same time, we send a copy of those instructions to the part of our brain that monitors our position and sensation. So in other words, we're saying, I'm going to make this movement, and so it should feel like this. In people who've got delusions of alien control, there does seem to be this disconnect between when those messages arrive. You will get the sense, my hand moved before I thought I was going to move it. So that idea that you've got perhaps a problem of the timing of communications in different parts of the brain has come up again and again in trying to understand the symptoms of psychotic illness. And that might also explain things like auditory verbal hallucinations. One explanation for those is that it's actually some internal speech. So you have this internal monologue going on. You misattribute to something coming from outside your head, from some other person speaking. Essentially, people experiencing delusions or hallucinations are taking in sensory information, sight, sound, touch, but something is going awry when it comes to making sense of that information. Not everyone who experiences psychosis believes their delusions or hallucinations are real, but around 25% are unable to recognise they're experiencing an episode and it can be near impossible to talk them out of it. Yes, there seems to be something going on in the way in which they experience the world, but then they also have an explanation level where they ascribe those experiences to something else. So they don't go, oh, that was just a mistake I made. It's a real thing that is explained by often something unusual or outlandish. This is where we left Matt's story. Nothing makes sense, and yet everything makes sense. A tree grows from within the boy and takes over his body. His mind is free to roam. It first becomes a lizard-like creature that leaps from the tree, sprouts wings and flies off. Then it sort of morphs into a cow with wings. And then he morphs into a bird. Nothing is solid. Nothing is as it is. Everything has become really fluid. Under the vast dome of the sky and across thundering oceans he flew. He saw many things. Beasts of the ether that raged around him. But he pushed against the storm and soon found himself in a drifting place of light and emptiness. I wanted the story to be dreamlike, to be fantastical, to be alluring, to be 
something quite beautiful, even though that it, it's addressing quite a dark subject. I wanted my audience to experience beauty. That's kind of making the, the comment that the altered state in a full manic episode perhaps shouldn't be seen as this thing that's entirely dysfunctional. It is an altered state of thinking. Eventually, he emerged into a world of beauty and wonder. In the story, we're taken into this world that is, that is beautiful. You know, it's a world of beauty and wonder, as the words say. And then when the boy, as bird, flies to the heart of this place, he comes across the sovereign. At the heart of the city was a palace where within its tremendous stone walls, he met a powerful sovereign. The sovereign is actually a representation of the infantile self, which is at the heart of psychosis because you, you become completely narcissistic. All that matters is your experience. You lose awareness of others. So she represents that infantile self right at the heart of psychosis. Research has suggested during psychosis, people have a higher level of self-certainty, but no difference in their level of self-reflection. They're certain of their beliefs, their ideas, and their perception of the world, no matter how nonsensical those might seem to others. These thoughts and beliefs become fixed, and might even become more entrenched as delusions reoccur. The sovereign in Matt's story has bizarre beliefs that she imposes on everyone else and refuses to budge on, regardless of the evidence presented. He perched on her shoulder. Hello, he sang. Because he's a bird, he sings to the sovereign when he first meets her. And she says, no, you must not sing, you must bow to me. Insolence! I shall have you plucked. I shall have your wings clipped. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not from here. And she says, what do you mean? There is only here. This is it. This is the place. There is nowhere else but here. I am the one who governs. I am the bubble. And I am the holy cake of soap. So then he is sent off by her as punishment to discover whatever reflects her divinity, her beauty. She thinks that's an apt punishment for him for being so disrespectful. To find beauty. To find beauty. And you must report back everything you see that divinely reflects me. That is the rule. The boy flew out of the city, into the valleys and amongst the hills of here to begin his atonement. He wandered through the seasons and came to a place where water thundered into mist. He could not see what lay beyond the mist. Maybe this is the edge of the world, he thought. Of course, he discovers that there is elsewhere other than just here and that she is not the ruler of all things. Then he saw something unexpected. In all his wandering of the wilderness, he hadn't seen another human. But there, ahead of him, were people. 
I must warn the one who governs, he said to himself. He flew back through the valleys and over the hills of here until he reached the city. I have seen and heard many strange and beautiful things, he told the sovereign. I now know the dimensions of your domain, and I have seen the fragility of all things. But I have discovered something else. You are not the ruler of all things. And that causes her to fly into a rage, and this massive war begins within this fantasy world. They are breaking the rules. I declare This is the beginning of the descent out of that state of mania, that psychotic state, into deep, deep depression. Where one becomes at war with oneself. Psychologists, psychiatrists always talk about the loss of self-awareness, that this state that you're in, this is how it always is, always has been, always will be and just how destructive the crash out of that can be. At first, the combatants attacked each other with nothing but their own bodies. Then, as the war spread and intensified, they made machines of destruction that tore open the land and released storms and diseases to rage across the world complete destruction. I mean, that's the sense, the powerful sense of shame that can come out of these kinds of experiences and how one then turns so deeply in on oneself. The solo tenor singer actually sings some of the words that you see as graffiti on a wall in one of the images. I am loathing, I am fear. I am the day of reckoning, you know, this incredibly powerful sort of omnipotent almost sense of the strength of the self in its expression of the horror of itself. This is Matt's experience of what is known as the recovery phase of psychosis. People gain more insight, and the inner world that was once entirely consuming falls away. The once impenetrable beliefs can be seen for what they are, and in their wake, there can be a deep sense of shame and embarrassment. This can stop people reaching out for the support they need and from processing what might have been a traumatic experience. Anyone who has a complex mental illness who can become psychotic, we all know what stigma feels like. I didn't actually have a formal diagnosis of bipolar until I was in my mid-40s. I was like a lot of people back then with this disorder. I was ashamed to talk about some of my experiences. So in my mid-40s when I was diagnosed, 
a psychiatrist told me that often it's something like a 10-year journey between first presenting to a clinician with symptoms and then a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And it's often because people are ashamed to talk about their experiences. You know, surveys that are done where people are asked, how do you feel about people who have complex mental illness and are displaying behaviours or saying things that are challenging, etc. You know, and people will say, no, I understand that's an illness and it's not really them. No, we shouldn't shun people like that. We should embrace them. We should do what we can to help, etc., etc. And then asked, what of yourself, if you're diagnosed with an illness like that, the response often is, no, that's not me. That could not be me. We do know some of the triggers for psychosis. A traumatic experience can lead to an episode, sleep deprivation, certain medications, and the misuse of drugs or alcohol. But these do not explain all experiences. And while there are risk factors, psychosis can happen to anyone. Three in every 100 people will go through an episode in their lifetime. The earlier people get help, the better the outcome. But shame can stop people reaching out at a critical time. I mean, stigma full stop is a massive issue for psychotic illnesses. Professor Stephen Wood. We are doing better, I would say, in terms of stigma for non-psychotic illnesses, particularly depression and anxiety. We still have a lot of stigma surrounding the severe end of mental illnesses, be that mania, schizophrenia, or even psychotic depression, where maybe you have a delusion that part of your body has died. These are the sort of things that are very hard for people generally to conceptualise exactly what that must be like to experience. Individual self-stigma happens quite a lot as well, so people are very likely to not want to recognise what's going on for them, that they, they have experienced a lot of shame about symptoms. I come from a family where no one wanted to talk about these things, where I have felt incredibly alone in this journey and have also experienced so many times how frightened other people become of you if you do want to talk about these things. I've experienced the fear that other people have had of me when I've been really unwell. I'm a very, very gentle man and being violent is the, the last thing I would ever be and I know that deeply, but I know I can still be scary, you know, and, and that's understandable. The boy was appalled by what he'd unleashed. His anger and despair rose until it clawed the clouds and tried to tear down the sky itself to smother and obliterate all he'd done. That's the moment where one is coming out of that space of a lack of self-awareness and realising that there are others out there and that what one has just been through has impacted others, not just oneself. And of course, the impacting of the others, that metaphorically is the war, can be quite destructive, which is what happens towards the end of the book, when the boy wants to tear down the sky itself because of the, the destruction that he has reaped. Psychosis can be an isolating experience, especially with such a small percentage of the population having experienced it. 
Research suggests isolation might also lead to or exacerbate a psychotic experience. His screams of fury and anguish still leave in the storms. But this is where Matt's story and the story of the boy diverge. Because rather than shutting himself away in shame, the boy reaches out. That's where he hears the voices of those who love him. And he reaches out to them and says, I'm here, please help. He was once again within his tree, where, with all the grief of his heart, he pushed against his entombment. I am here, he called. And so he came back into the world. That's really the message at the end of the book, that because we understand so little about complex mental illness, really, in the scheme of things, and we understand so little how and why a lot of medications either work or don't work, really the best therapy, the best help, the best way that one can journey into wellness is through the love of other people and of oneself. And that's why at the end of the book it says, And still the tree of ecstasy and unbearable sadness was within him. Still the tree grew flowers. And still it bore fruit. And that's how the story ends. But the image shows a hand coming up ready to catch the fruit when it falls. Because that ultimately is what will carry people like me through. Matt wants to pass on what he's learned, not only to people who are going through the same thing, but also people who will never go through psychosis. It might mean they're better able to approach or care for someone in this situation in the future. I really did my book because I wanted people to feel powerfully, without having to put words to it, what psychosis is like. If, if nothing else, if it, it gives them an insight into just how far off the radar of normal someone's thinking can become. If it gives them their own emotional experience of that state, then that in itself is a very powerful thing. The phases of a psychotic episode are similar to a narrative arc. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in the end, Matt says, non-judgmental care is the most important thing. Through his art, he wants people to understand that it's okay to seek care and ask for help. And he hopes a more empathetic support system will be there waiting for those who do. If I'm going to make sense of this life I've had, then being open about it and turning my work to it is my way of making sense of what has been felt like such a senseless thing. If I can help others come to some sense of peace or understanding in the process, then I've fulfilled a role as an artist that I think is very valuable. Because I, I really do truly believe that change only occurs in society via empathy. 
That is Matt Otley, creator of The Tree of Ecstasy and Unbearable Sadness. And before him, you heard from Stephen Wood, professor of clinical translational neuroscience at Origin and the University of Melbourne. This episode was reported and produced by Shelby Trainer. Our sound engineer was John Jacobs. And if you're interested in hearing more about the exploration of psychosis in art, check out our episode titled A Musician Processes Her Bipolar Diagnosis. In that episode, we interviewed ARIA-nominated musician Pavin about her album that was inspired by her experience of psychosis. Her music is also stunning, so do your ears a favor and have a listen to that one as well. Again, it's called A Musician Processes Her Bipolar Diagnosis. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.